listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the book of Acts, how Christians live. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on couragematters.com. Well, good morning, church. I hope that you're ready to hear from the Lord this morning. Good, 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 good. Because I have to confess, this probably was, and I haven't preached a lot in my life, but this is probably one of the most frustrating, challenging sermons to prepare for. And that actually had to do with me not surrendering to the Lord. And I've shared with you guys about some of my anxieties or my fears that have been an Achilles heel for me all my life. And that plays itself out in different ways. And so, you know, there was just this temptation. Sunday's coming, Sunday's coming. I need to get this ready. I need to know, Lord, tell me, tell me, what do you want me to say? And he just kept waiting and just kept waiting. And so I sat down, I'm trying to force a sermon on my own. It's just not happening. So I had a a mini meltdown and praise God. I'm gonna embarrass my wife. I have an amazing wife. And I also call her my coach because she's full of wisdom. She came in, she could say I was frustrated and just asked me what was going on and said, look, you just, you need to walk away. You just need to walk away and spend time praying to the Lord. And once you know it, go figure the Lord showed me what he wanted to speak to all of us, but first and foremost to me in my own life. So I hope that you're ready to hear from the Lord. This morning, what we're going to look at is we're going to look at two key traits and four essential practices that you and I individually and we as a church must implement into our lives in order that we may be able to see God move mightily and powerfully manifesting his presence, movement and power in our midst so that together with him, we can radically transform our culture for God's glory. So I hope that that excites you. Turn with me to the book of Acts chapter two. This gives us a snapshot of the early church starting in verse 42, it says this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. Wow. I hope that we haven't, that I haven't, that you haven't become so familiar with this passage that we miss it because Church, this is an eye-opening, jaw-dropping passage of what God wants to do in every single one of his churches across the entire world. And dare I say, God has begun and is doing this in our midst right here at Grace Fellowship. And we should be excited about that because the Lord is moving powerfully. 
The Lord is adding to our number. Every week, the Lord's adding to our number. People are coming to know Jesus. God is moving and is present in our midst. He's bringing healing to people in need of healing. And we are increasing in our generosity towards one another. And yet, I hope your prayer and your desire is to see God move even more, more powerfully. We want more of God's presence, more of God's movement, more of God's power in our midst. So how does this get accomplished in God's church? How does this, what we see here in Acts 2, 42 through 47, which is a head scratcher for many of us, we go, boy, I read the Bible and this doesn't really seem to match my experience in the church. And we should be cut to the heart over that. So how does this type of culture, this type of community come into existence and become a reality and not just a pipe dream in our midst? Two key traits and four essential practices. We could summarize the key traits this way. The two key traits that you and I need and that we need as a church are personal humility and collective unity. Here's why we need them. What we see in this passage, this type of culture is created when you and I are walking in personal humility, which leads to collective unity so that we might glorify God by loving God, loving people and making disciples, enabling us to be the contrast community that God has called us to be. What do I mean? Turn with me to John's gospel, chapter 17. Start in verse 15. This is Jesus's high priestly prayer before he goes to the cross and he's praying for his followers. He says this, starting in verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and I, Jesus is praying for us. And he's praying that they may be one, just as you father are in me and I am in you, that they may also be in us, why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Two very interesting things to highlight in this passage. Number one is you don't see Jesus praying this. You don't see Jesus praying, Father, please take the disciples, please take the church, take my followers and remove them from the world. Remove them from the evils of the world, Lord. It's all about escaping to heaven and being with you. No, you see the exact opposite. Jesus is saying, no, Lord, send my followers into the world so that we may partner with them. They may partner with us in reconciling people to Jesus. Church, we are God's plan A for the world. It is not necessarily about one day getting to heaven as much as it is heaven getting into us right now so that we can be partnering with God in advancing the gospel, proclaiming the good news seeing people come to know Jesus. 
But the second thing that's amazing in this passage is Jesus says the number one reason why people are going to come to know him is what? Is the church. But specifically doing what? The church walking together in unity. Unity. Why? Because it is when we are walking in unity, it one in vision and mission and purpose that we are able to maximize glorifying God by loving God, making disciples and loving people. So how do we achieve this unity? And it's not uniformity. We're not all dressed in the same clothes, doing all the same types of things, living in all the same places, but unity and vision and mission, God's vision and God's mission to bring great glory to him. How do we achieve that? Well, turn with me to Philippians chapter two. God speaking to the church through his servant, Paul. He says this, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. What's interesting, we'll pause here, is that the NIV renders this being of one purpose. So we see Paul is telling the church, Church, be unified, walk in unity. Okay, Paul, well, how do we achieve this type of unity? Verse three, he's gonna show us. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So the Lord is showing us, church, we wanna see Acts 2, 42 through 47 played out here. What you need and what I need and what we need together is to have personal humility so that we may walk in collective unity. Practically speaking, what this means is that there are no secret sins. There are no secret strongholds. Why? Because your personal holiness your personal humility, my personal holiness, personal humility absolutely matters. Not just in my own life, not just in your own life, but for the sake of the church, God's people. It matters immensely and it hinges upon personal humility, surrendering our lives to the Lord, adjusting and aligning our lives with what he has laid out in his word and putting it into practice by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, you heard me say, we are to walk in personal humility, which leads to collective unity so that we can be a contrast community. What do I mean when I say that? Well, turn back to Acts chapter two. This is what we see. Verse 43, many wonders and signs are being done by God. He's moving in the church's midst in an absolutely unmistakable way and fashion and all is coming upon everyone. That word all in the Greek is phobos, right? Where we get our word phobia. It means fear. It means reverential fear. And it's not just falling on the church. It's falling on the entire community in Jerusalem because what we see here is a public faith and God moving in unmistakable, undeniable ways. His power, his presence, his movement on full display. And what else happens? Verse 44, they were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Interesting fact, the word selling 
and the word distributing in the Greek, their tense is continual, meaning it's ongoing. So as needs arose, the church stepped up. They sold their possessions, they sold their property, they shared with any who had need. And then day by day, they attended the temple together. Why? Because the early church was made up of Jewish followers of Jesus. Jesus was the long awaited Messiah. And so they continued to go to the temple three times daily, 9 a.m., noon, and 3 p.m. Why? For scripture reading and for prayer. And so they gathered together and they're praying and they're breaking bread in their homes. We see hospitality in this passage. They're devoting themselves to it. And they're receiving their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. This is absolutely astounding and amazing. And this is the type of culture that we with intentionality are aiming for here at Grace Fellowship. What I mean is this, we talk about our core ideology here at Grace, our core ideology, our vision, our mission, our values, our doctrine, our culture. We have with painstaking intentionality developed our culture of grace document and we cover all of this in partnership. And what it lays out is it's a practical theology based off of God's word that shows us, friends, what we see in this passage is not some pipe dream. What we see in this passage shouldn't be an exception, but rather an example in our midst. How many of us are hungry and longing to be part of a church like this in this passage? We wanna see God move, see him move. We wanna be that contrast community. All of these things were happening in the early church and it was a head scratcher to the world around them. It was a head scratcher. Who in the world are these people? They're giving up their possessions. Are you kidding me? I was taught to be prideful. I was taught that life is about me, myself, and I, and no one else. Contrast community, the behaviors of the church, an overflow of their walk with the Lord, bubbling generosity flowing out into the church. God blessing this community as they walk in unity. Oh, it's amazing. Absolutely astounding. So the two traits, humility and unity are essential. But what we also see in this passage are that there are four practices, four practices that the early church put into action. Look with me at verse 42. It says that they devoted themselves. Let's stop right there. They devoted themselves. Devoted is a very strong word. It means that with intense focus. They gave up large amounts of their time and their energy and their efforts for the person work of Jesus and for the sake of the advancement of his kingdom. Why? Because they had encountered the grace and the love and the mercy of God Almighty, and they just could not help but living out of the power of the Holy Spirit and overflow of what they had received in Christ. And they're devoting themselves to these four practices, meaning they are reorienting their lives, reorienting, simplifying their lives so that they can put these four things into practice in their own lives and as a church. Now, I don't know about you. I got a lot of reorienting to do in my life. 
I got a lot of simplifying to do in my life because I wanna see this. We wanna see this. We wanna see this type of culture right here. So what did they devote themselves to? Number one, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What was that? Well, remember, this is a predominantly Jewish movement to this point, focusing and walking together underneath the banner, person and work of Jesus Christ. They had the entire Old Testament, but they didn't have the New Testament yet. See, the New Testament was being worked out. It was being worked out in their midst. So they sat underneath the apostles' teaching. Why the apostles? Because they were the ones who had spent time with Jesus, were discipled by Jesus. Jesus had anointed and appointed them to lead. And so they're looking at the Old Testament through the lens of the person and work of Jesus. And they're saying, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He's the long awaited Messiah. They devoted themselves to this, to the teaching of God's word. The second thing that we see they devoted themselves to was the fellowship. Now in Greek, this word is koinonia. Koinonia simply means this. It was a sharing in common. What are they sharing? First and foremost, they have a shared faith, right? In Jesus. Then they have shared relationships with one another where they're sharing and caring for one another. This is the fellowship. And this fellowship is walking in unity and they are an absolute powerhouse for the advancement of God's kingdom. The third thing we see is that they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Now, there are a lot of scholars out there who are much smarter than me. I'm gonna give the nod to them. Even scholars, very godly men and women do not agree on what this means, the breaking of bread. Some say this is obviously a nod to communion, to the Lord's Supper. Others say no, breaking of bread was just a cultural expression, a way to say, hey, let's go have dinner. Let's go have lunch. Let's have a meal together. Regardless of what it actually was, what we see in this passage down in verse 46 is that they broke bread together in their homes day by day. So there is immense hospitality within the early church, a warm and welcoming environment, welcoming others into their homes to encourage them in the faith. And then the final thing we see is the prayers, the prayers. These would have been a combination of preset prayers at the temple at nine, 12 and three as well as prayers that we see throughout the book of Acts as the early church gathers together outside of the temple and they're praying and they're praying through the lens of what Jesus has done. And they're praying to Jesus in Jesus's name, meaning it's in the authority of Jesus. Jesus is moving. What does this look like for us? Because last time I checked, we don't live in Israel. This is in Jerusalem. And this is the year 2017, and this is America. So how does this translate into today for us? What do we do with this? If we want this type of culture, and we see these practices, how do we put these practices into action in our own lives and then right here as a church? So let's start with the first one, the apostles teaching. What does that mean for us today? Well, for us today, we have the full counsel of God, the entire scriptures. Think about it this way. The early church had less of the Bible than we have today. 
the early church had less knowledge of the entirety of God's word than we have today. We should look at this and go, wait a second. They had less knowledge of God's word and yet look at what God was doing in their midst. And friends, dare I say, it's because you and I and we together have bought into a lie. Turn with me to Matthew 7. We're gonna start at verse 24. This is Jesus ending his sermon on the Mount. And he says this, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house and it didn't fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great fall. You see what Jesus is saying here? Jesus is saying that we have bought into the lie that discipleship, meaning following Jesus, we've bought into the lie that information begets transformation. We've made the mistake that hearing is the same as listening. What we see here is it's not about so much what we know, knowledge, however, matters. Second Peter talks about pursuing the knowledge of God to be productive in your faith. But it's not simply a knowledge just for knowledge's sake. It's not simply just, oh, I'm gonna go ahead and I'm gonna open up God's word and I'm gonna read it. And now I'm gonna be able to win any Bible trivia challenges that I enter into. It's not about that. It's not about what we know. It's about what we do with what we know. That is what matters. And this is why church, that when we read God's word, we need to be prayerfully reading God's word. Before you even open up the word, pray to the Lord and say, Lord, I wanna invite you into this, Lord. I want to seek your face. I want you to show me, Lord, what it is that you want me to see from your word and how it is that you want me to adjust my life to what you've revealed in your word. And I don't know about you, I'm not a huge fan of journaling, but I have I kind of forced myself into the habit just to experiment and see how it went. But as I read God's word, I journal two questions. And these questions are this, what is God saying to me? And how is he calling me to respond? What is God saying? How am I responding? See, when we start doing that, as we're reading God's word, that is when transformation begins to happen because we're putting God's word into action. God is going to bless that. So practically speaking, what does that look like for us in our own lives? Well, we've talked about journaling. We've talked about prayerfully reading God's word, but it also is important for us to be feasting on God's word together every Sunday, which is what we do. And it is a pleasure and a privilege to be here, to be part of this church, to hear the teaching that God pours out on this congregation. It's a privilege. But it's important for us, friends, to be feeding ourselves God's word throughout the week. We have 24 seven access to the word of God, which addresses all facets and all areas of life. 
teaches us to live lives of godliness. We need to be feeding ourselves with God's word each day. Because guess what's gonna happen? If we don't feed ourselves with God's word each day, spiritually speaking, you're going to start to look like me. It's okay to laugh at that, by the way. Spiritually speaking, as we're not in God's word, you're gonna look like I do physically. What do I, I turn sideways? I turn sideways, a strong breeze could blow me over. Spiritually speaking, I've experienced that in my own life when I'm not in God's word daily. It's not that I have to be, it's that I get to be. I get to have a word from God 24 seven through the scriptures. And we feast off of that in our own lives. And then we do this also in the context of a life group. We've tried to make things as simple as possible here at Grace Fellowship. And a primary way that we can put this into practice is to be in a life group where we look at sermon-based discussion questions for the purpose of application and transparency, opening our lives up to others. Why? So we can put God's word into action. That's what counts. So what's the second thing that we see back in Acts 2.42? The second thing we see is the fellowship, the fellowship. Now, I don't know about you, but the fellowship's a hard one for me to grasp. It's a hard one for me to grasp because I live in America and we pride ourselves, right, wrong, or indifferent, we pride ourselves on rugged individualism. Me, myself, and I pull myself up by my bootstraps. And this is how in our nation, we can have such notions in our nation like this. I'm sure you've probably heard this one, or maybe it's even come out of your mouth because it's come out of my mouth before. And it's this, well, I can, I can be a follower of Jesus and not be part of the church. I don't need to be part of the church. The reality is from what we see in God's word is, friends, when we put our faith in Jesus, we are part of the church. The church is the people of God, it's not the building. So we're part of the church. Why would we need to be part of the church? We see three reasons. It's to benefit yourself. It's to benefit those who do not yet know Jesus. And it's to benefit the church, the body of believers. Think about it this way. This gets traced all the way back to God. God within himself, track with me on this one, okay? This is a Ravi Zacharias line, all right? So it might take a little bit of time to process because he's just mind-blowing. But within God himself, there is community in unity within the Trinity. Do you ever think about that? God is three in one. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So within God himself, there are relationships. Why does that matter? Because we're made in God's image. It means that you and I are hardwired for relationships. It means that they're not optional. It means that we are to be in relationships. Where's another place that we see this in scripture? Well, we see it all over the place, but we actually see it back in Genesis when God is making everything and creating everything. And he says, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then we get, it's not good. What's not good? What's not good for man to be alone? Well, now hold on a second, God. He's not alone, he's with you and you're with him. Interesting. God is saying it's not enough just for it to be me and Jesus, but it's to be we and Jesus together, marching forward as God's chosen people. Turn with me to Romans chapter 12. So what we've seen is 
We need to be in the fellowship because it's beneficial for us. We're hardwired for relationships. Loneliness is rampant in our culture, absolutely rampant in our culture. We have never before been so connected technologically. I can get on my smartphone, I can find out what's going on in Japan right now, but I don't even understand or know what's going on in my neighbor's life. We're lonely, we're isolated. We need to be in fellowship. We need to participate in the fellowship. Second reason why we need to participate in the fellowship. Romans 12, starting in verse four, Paul says this, for as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. And then he goes on to list some of those gifts. It's important for us to participate in the fellowship because to not participate in the fellowship is to rob God of glory. Why? Church, because he's given each one of us gifts. He's given each one of us talents and abilities and experiences that are unique. And he calls us together, serve one another, Build up the body, why? For my glory. And you know what a byproduct of that is? The church gets built up and those who don't know Jesus look at the church and scratch their heads and go, I wanna be part of that. I wanna be part of that community. So again, we try to make this as simple as possible here at Grace. So in your own life, practically speaking, Obviously you can be serving others within the congregation, but specifically in any church, there are opportunities to volunteer, to serve. Put your faith into action, participate in the fellowship. And then the final reason we see here in Romans 12, look with me at verse nine. It says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. Well, how are we supposed to one another if there is no one another? It's just me and Jesus. Our faith is lived out in the context of community. Growth in the Lord happens within the context of community. Because look, we all got salad in our teeth and we all got bats in the cave, if you know what I'm talking about right? We need somebody to point those things out and say, hey, bro, come here, look, you got this going on in your life. This is what God's word says. I'm sharing it with you. I don't have it all figured out, but I'm sharing it with you because I love you. And I want to see you outdo me in honor. What? Are you kidding me? Look, church, if we put just these verses into practice right here in Romans, can you imagine what the Lord would do here? Can you imagine how we would turn the world upside down? Can you imagine on a Sunday morning, we're meeting one another, oh, hey, Mike, hey, Mike, you know what? I'm gonna outdo you in honor today. Yeah, I'm gonna outdo you in honor. I'm gonna seek to show hospitality. I'm gonna be fervent in spirit. This is what the Lord has called us to do. Put this into practice. Serve one another, love one another, be in fellowship with one another because the benefits outweigh the costs. They do. It's where we learn to love people and love God because our love for people is a reflection of our love for God. I don't know about you, but I am tired. I'm just tired. I'm tired of the racial division in our nation. I am tired of the generational division. I am tired of the division that we see in families. 
so when we as a church come together, whether it's on a Sunday morning or in a life group or just by building relationships with one another here, when people out in the world see those relationships and they walk into your life group and they see there are people in this life group who could be parents, who could be grandparents, who were somebody's kids, somebody's grandkids. There's people here of different ethnicities and different socioeconomic classes. Why in the world are y'all together? What are you doing together, guys? It's Jesus. He's the one who brings us and he's the one who binds us together for his glory. Now, the third thing we see back to Acts, the third essential practice that they're putting into action in the early church is the breaking of bread. So if the breaking of bread is the Lord's Supper, is communion, we do that as a church, right? We do that as a church on a regular basis. We gather together and we celebrate what the Lord has done for us through the person and work of Jesus, reconciling us to him through the work on the cross. But what we also see in this passage in verse 46 is that this is occurring in the context of their homes and the breaking of bread, again, is a cultural idiom, a way of saying, hey, come on over and let's grab a meal. Hospitality. Did you know that being hospitable is actually a qualification to be an elder? Did you know that? 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, being hospitable is a qualification. Now, it's not just for elders. Don't think we're off the hook here if you're not an elder. We're not, because in 1 Peter 4, and here in Romans 12, God shows us that we are to show hospitality to those within the household of faith. Show hospitality. Now, why would we practice the lost art of hospitality, especially in the culture that we live in? Very individualistic. Why, why should we do this? What are the benefits of doing this? What's in it for me, right? You think about it this way. How much time do we spend together on a Sunday morning? How much time, if you're in a life group, how much time are you spending with one another on a Sunday morning? And then in a life group that might meet every week or every other week. You add that up against all of the times that we're not meeting. And there's a a lot bigger time chunk of when we're not meeting together than when we are meeting together. And the Christian life is a great privilege of following Jesus 365 days, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So we have to be showing one another hospitality because how in the world are we going to learn what it means to put this into practice? I bet you if we took a poll and I asked you, hey, name your top three sermons that have radically changed your life and shown you what it means to follow God. We might be able to list off maybe one or two. Usually what'll happen if if you're like me, fragments of certain messages will come to mind that have greatly impacted me. But then if we ask the question, name your top three books that you've read outside of the Bible that have greatly impacted you and shown you what it means to follow God, books other than the Bible, we might be able to come up with three a little bit easier. But if I asked you and we asked one another, name three relationships of people who greatly impacted you and taught you and showed you, modeled for you, what does it mean to follow God and put his word into action? Now, now we're talking. Amen. Now we're talking. See, it's easy to put the church face on, right? 
It's very easy to do that. Oh yeah, I'm doing great. Doing great, God's good, doing great. And then go home and no, I'm not, I'm not doing great. I need help. For us millennials, 35s and younger, many of us come from broken homes. How are we supposed to learn what it means to have a good marriage? How are we supposed to learn how to be godly parents? Where do we learn those things? Well, we see them modeled, but maybe the models weren't the greatest because they didn't align as well as they could have with God's word. Friends, we need to open up our homes to one another. We need to show one another, not just, hey, let me sit down and let's work through this workbook, but let's do life together. Let me show you what it looks like to follow Jesus in the context of my home. And I know what you're thinking, because it's the same thing that goes through my mind, but isn't that a lot of work? If you're like me, you know, we're gonna have people over to the house and I gotta clean this up and, and I gotta dust this and I gotta move that. And, uh, oh, what haven't we cleaned yet? Oh, I gotta do this. And then by the time the guests come, you're just exhausted. You're just like, are you leaving yet? Cause I'm t- I just need to go to bed, I'm tired. And what my wife and I have learned in showing hospitality to others is that we must prioritize people over presentation. We live in a social media saturated soundbite world. And when I go on Facebook or we go on social media and you're scrolling through, it's very easy to scroll through and go, oh my word, my life. Because all these people have it all figured out. I mean, they just have it all figured out, right? It's like looking at somebody's ESPN top 10 highlights of their lives. You know what people really want? People really want genuine, transparent relationships. So go ahead on social media, post a picture of your house in disarray and say, hey, (laughs) this is life, okay, this is life. Why? Because that's what we need. Friends, out of anybody on the face of the earth, shouldn't we be the ones prioritizing people over some fake facade? right? Now, men, don't hear me wrong on this, okay? I'm not saying like this gives you a right to just, you know, okay, honey, you know, we don't, yeah, you what Pastor Joe said, so it doesn't really matter if we clean that up. Okay, that matters. Husbands, honor your wives, okay? Love your wives, cherish your wives. But this matters. Show hospitality to one another. Now, God's word actually tells us we are called to show hospitality to everyone. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13, verses one and two says this, let brotherly love continue. Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels. Show hospitality to strangers. That was hard enough thinking about showing hospitality to people who know Jesus. You want me to show hospitality to people who don't know Jesus? Come on now. I mean, we live in a very fear-driven culture. We're very suspicious of other people. And I've grown up in PA all my life, all right? So I can say this, that we are especially suspicious of people, right? You know, you've got your no soliciting sign on the door, which I get, by the way, okay, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but no soliciting on the door. And you've got yourself barricaded in your house. You've got your gun in your hand. You've got your little three by three slot in your door where you can just slide that back and put the gun through. Oh boy, you know, I really hope, you know, these people, what are they doing? They're walking by my house walking by my house. They're walking by. I hope that they're not going to stop and try to sell me some of them Girl Scout cookies. 
I'm gonna give them a piece of blue steel, right? Fear-driven culture. We're suspicious of people. We're afraid of people. Newsflash is this. People are just as suspicious and fearful of us as we are of them. And that should actually be good news, okay? Because the reality of it is, while there is a lot of sick, disgusting, twisted things happening in our world, we're actually more aware of those things because we have access to technology that lets us know that when somebody does something heinous in Japan, that we can now know right away on our smartphones. And the reality of it is, is that most of our neighbors, they're just normal people. They're normal people. They don't know Jesus. How are they gonna get to know Jesus? Take the first step, make the first move, walk across the room, get to know people. Why? This is exactly what Jesus did. So what that means for us is, friends, we must not view our homes as castles to keep and barricade people from coming in. Instead of viewing it as a castle, our homes are gifts from God. They're gifts from God. Do you know that God has placed you strategically with the neighbors that he's given you, like him or not? He's placed you strategically there because in Acts 17, God's word tells us that God has ordained where everybody has been born. Why? So that they may come to know him. He's ordained where we live. Where you live matters. So our homes are not castles, but rather launching pads for God's mission to be fulfilled. God has a vision for your neighborhood. He has a vision for your neighbor's lives. How in the world are they supposed to come to know Jesus when we can't even say hi? Come on. And I know it's not easy. I know that we're busy, but look, here are some practical things that we can do, okay? Instead of playing out in the backyard and having your getaway on the back porch, put it out on the front porch. Why? So that way when people walk by, you can start with a wave. Hey, how's it going? Then you get to know them. You get to know their name. Then you can invite them over for dinner. If they don't want to come over to your house, maybe you meet in a third space in a coffee shop, restaurant. Why would we do any of this? Because God has called us to love people. He's called us to love them. My wife and I, we have an 83-year-old neighbor. And so recently with this past snowstorm, we were over and we were plowing the driveway, clearing out the driveway for her. Why would we do that? Because we want something in return? No, because that's how relationships start. We have to make ourselves available to people. So there was this interesting study that was done in Thailand. What this research group did was they followed two different missionary groups. And these two different missionary groups had two distinct approaches to missions. Group A, we'll call them the converters. Their methodology was what we're going to do is we're gonna take the gospel and we're gonna go to somebody on the street and we're just gonna ask them what's going on. Hey, you know where you're going when you die. By the way, there's nothing wrong with that, okay? That was their approach. Group B, we'll call them the blessers. Their methodology was motivated by this thread that we see all throughout scripture that we trace all the way back to Genesis 12, where God says to Abraham, I have blessed you to be a blessing. What's that mean for us? 
Guys, it means that we've been called by God. We've been saved by God. We've been blessed by God, not for ourselves. Heavens, no, not for ourselves, but so that we can bless others and bring great glory to God. That's what God wants. And so this group of blessers after a two year period, who do you think out of those two groups had more converts? I say it that way because really God's the one who draws people to himself. He uses us as instruments to help in that process. But which one of those two groups? The blessers. The blessers had twice as many people come to know Jesus. And their approach was simple. We're gonna go and we're gonna begin with prayer and we're just gonna ask God, God, where are you moving here? Where are you moving in this neighborhood? Where are you moving in this city? Lead us into relationships with people who are open to the gospel. And then we'll listen to them. We'll hear what's on their hearts. We'll hear, where are they longing for God? And they don't even know it. And then we'll eat with them. We'll fellowship with them. We'll serve them, seek for ways to serve them. And then through that process, guess what happens? We get to know them, they get to know us. We get to share our story, the story of Jesus. This is why the lost art of hospitality absolutely is vital for us in this nation. We as a church, as Christians are being continuously marginalized, continuously marginalized. Younger generations, we have no knowledge of God. We have no knowledge of God's word. But let me tell you something, from my interaction with other millennials who don't know God, oh my word is the harvest ripe. Oh my word, the harvest is so ripe if we would just wake up. People all around us every day are dying and spending an eternity apart from God. Because guess what? You and I, we were way too important to make ourselves available to spend time. Why would we do that? I'm speaking and I'm preaching to myself right now. Hospitality matters. And hospitality matters the most because of this. Look at how God met us. He took on flesh. He dwelt among us. He moved into our neighborhood and he communicated the love and grace and mercy of God in a way that we could understand, in language that we could understand and relate to for the purpose that we might come to know him and bring him great glory. Friends, we get the privilege to do that. It's not that we have to, it's that we get to. We get to participate with God in his restoration process. It's amazing. And guess what happens as we do this? We actually get to grow in our faith as well. So the last practice simply just says this, the prayers. It's the last practice. Turn with me to John 15, verse four. Jesus speaking to his followers says, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me, you can do some things. Is that what it says? No, you can do nothing. Friends, the prayers, this practice, this warrants multiple messages. But I'm gonna say it this way in two minutes. God absolutely is longing to move mightily in and through this church. But God's a gentleman. He's gonna wait on us. He's gonna wait on us to seek him. He's gonna wait on us to cry out to him. He's gonna wait on us to see how, just see how self-reliant we are. 
You wonder why, and I wonder why. Why do we have problems in our marriage? Why do we have problems with our children? Why do we have problems with other people? We're not surrendering to the Lord, crying out to him. God wants to move so mightily and he's waiting for us. He's waiting for you and me. That pre-service prayer time before first service is in room 200, that should be packed out. And I don't mean that in a guilt trip way. I just mean that in a, we need to be God dependent, not self-reliant. Plead with God to do what only God can do. And friends, let us not one day get to eternity and see this room filled with amazing things. And we say, God, what's that room? Oh, well, that's the room that, that's my grace. That's my mercy. That's my love. That's thousands of people coming to know me. Well, what's it doing in there? Well, they were unanswered prayers. Unanswered prayers, waiting for my church. Prayer drives everything else that we see in this passage. We need to rely on the Lord. So friends, if we want to transform culture and we want to partner with God, we need to first allow God to develop this culture within us by putting these two traits and these four practices into action. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. You can also invite Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event. To learn more, visit couragematters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.